One of my favorite memories from growing up was when I'd play in a really big water polo tournament. And afterwards, my parents would take me to this local joint, Fenton's, for a burger and a milkshake. But I'm kind of worried, Jim, that you're not going to be able to do that with your kids. What are you talking about? Of course we're going to do that. (laughs) No, let me play this out for you. I'm going to drop you off on a sunny summer day in your future, let's say 2029, and your daughter Sadie's just finished playing in her very first baseball game. Long day, really hot, your family's super hungry and excited to go out and celebrate her because she actually hit a home run. So you drive to your neighborhood Main Street, you get out, you're looking for a place that has a booth to all sit down in, and there's no tables. We mean, there's nowhere to sit? No, there are literally no tables. Let me explain. So you're walking down the street, and you first pass, let's say, like a takeout delivery window. Then the next thing you pass is a food truck. And then, okay, you come to some tables, but they're at a five-star restaurant. That's not kid-friendly. You're not going to be able to go there. So you think to yourself, oh, I remember my favorite Greek place sent me a coupon yesterday by email. So you drag your family around the corner to go to the Greek place, and you get to their front door, and it's locked. And there's a sign on the door that says, find us on Uber Eats. No. (laughs) Yeah, so you've really struck out. Home run's forgotten. It was a total fail. Molly, it's like the restaurant apocalypse or something. No burgers, no milkshakes. This is terrible. (laughs) Well, you know, I think you can thank all those food delivery apps that live on our phones. And not just Uber Eats, but Grubhub, Postmates, Seamless, and more. These are all multi-billion dollar companies. So I'm wondering, are they just a convenient guiltless pleasure? Or might they be a tech Trojan horse That's going to kill all our neighborhood joints. Ooh, tech Trojan horse, Greek restaurant, you're talking my language. (laughs) Well, let's take a trip to Delivery City after the break. Welcome to Technopolis, where technology is disrupting, remaking, and sometimes overrunning our cities. I'm Jim Capsis. I was a climate negotiator in the Obama administration, and now I advise tech startups. And I'm Molly Turner. I teach urban innovation at the Berkeley Haas School of Business, and I was the first policy director at Airbnb. So stay seated today, because we're bringing the goods right to you. We're talking about food delivery apps. And we're going to explore how might they change the restaurant business and our cities. We've got two great guests. We've got Leslie Silverglide, who's the CEO of Mixed, which is a fast, casual salad joint in San Francisco that uses technology to optimize its business. We're also going to talk to Amy Liu, who runs the Brookings Institution Metropolitan Policy Program. She's an expert on how local businesses can impact city economies. But first, I should explain how I got to this dystopian summer evening of yours. Oh, good. Please do. (laughs) I want to hear this. So it all started because I like to order pho from this local Vietnamese joint in my neighborhood. I order like maybe once a month. And one evening I actually went in to eat the soup at the restaurant. And I was totally surprised because it was absolutely buzzing with all these delivery guys coming to pick up orders. But the tables were almost completely empty. There was actually nobody sitting there. And it got me wondering, 
what's going to happen to the restaurant business when everybody is ordering food delivery from these apps all the time? That is a really good question. And to help us uncover some possible answers, let's go to our first guest, Leslie of Mixed. I think she's a great person to help us look over that bleeding edge of food delivery apps from the restaurant's perspective. We opened our first restaurant called Mixed in 2006 right here in San Francisco. We wanted to create a very inviting environment, but also where you would come up and have this array of over 100 ingredients with a salad chef in front of you. Are people sitting down and eating generally, or is it mostly people taken out? It depends on the location. So in our what we call our financial district restaurants, it's more people that are just looking to grab something quickly and then probably take it back to their office or wherever they're going. But in our neighborhood locations, it is more of a dining experience. Leslie, the restaurant business, generally speaking, seems to be going through uh, a boom Well, Mm -hmm. at the same time, you know, we hear about the retail apocalypse, all these retail stores going out of business. Why are the restaurant businesses appear to be doing better, and are they? Restaurants are definitely doing better. There's been a big shift in people eating out more. I think it's generational, mostly. We're not good at cooking anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I think that efficiency and time-saving has become so important to people. They don't want to cook. Can you tell us about the role of tech in your restaurants? So my husband, who's also my partner, came from a technology background. From the get-go, he said, you know, I want this to be very tech-forward and add my skill set to to what we'll be doing. And so even at the first restaurant, when we started looking and saying, okay, what are our our options for point-of-sales systems? There was two major players at the time, and he looked at both and was like, neither of these do what we need to do, so I'm going to build our own. <laughs> and so I said, okay, wow. as, long as, as long as it works, I don't care. Give us some other examples of how you're using technology uh, in the business that maybe would surprise people. The Caviar team came to us, which is a third-party delivery service. We have heard that restaurants have a problem with delivery. We think we can solve this. And yes, this is a huge problem. You were already doing delivery? Yep. We were doing our own delivery. How? Just with our own employees. Mm. And so we were we had a very tight radius at which people could go, and it was basically uh, three or four blocks, so just where they could walk. Or pre-Uber, um, people would take taxis. No. Uh, Your employees would it. take taxis with the salads to yep. someone's office? Yep. Wow, that Salad really taxis. seems inefficient. That could be a business. <laughs> and expensive. <laughs> it was honestly a huge pain in our ass. And so when the Caviar team approached us, we said, oh, yes, please. This, this is great. So how has delivery changed the logistics or the economics of your business? Working with these with Caviar and these food delivery apps, how's that changed your business, if at all? We have seen over the past three years a lot of business shift to our third-party delivery. That has a big influence on our business in several ways. The first is that it becomes risky revenue for us. We don't own the customer. So even when we get an order that comes through, we have no idea who that customer is. They have a customer ID. It might be a first name, but we have no idea who that customer is, how frequently they order, how far this order is going, and we have no ability to ever reach that customer. And the other issue with it is is that it's 
compounding the risk of your business. Let's say that for some reason these delivery services all go out of business overnight, then that's a big chunk of revenue that we've now staffed up for, that we're ordering for. We've negotiated pricing from our suppliers on um, that could potentially disappear. Are you worried about that? I don't think that it necessarily would disappear overnight and be that dramatic, but there is an interesting situation with the delivery partners right now where the consumer is not bearing the cost of delivery. Mm. Right now, it's a mix between the restaurants themselves and these well-funded companies. Essentially, the funding is subsidizing a lot of this delivery and driving up demand and customers using these platforms. The funding meaning the financing, like the venture capital that's that's financing the food app companies. Yep, exactly. Given that we are tech forward and very sophisticated, we've been able to figure out systems that make this work for us and make it where it is a profitable line of business for us. But it's created this scrambling where everybody is feeling like, oh, my God, am I not on it? Then I'm left out that I have to get on it. I've watched countless other local restaurants that have jumped into this uh, third-party delivery thinking that this is amazing. They all of a sudden see 10% increase in revenue. But by the time they're dealing with the logistics and then also paying the fee to the third party, it becomes unprofitable revenue for them. Do you feel as if if you wanted to tomorrow, you could stop using the food delivery apps? At this point, we're heavily invested. So for us, it would be a very difficult line of business to all of a sudden turn off. The rubber's going to meet the road when the customer actually has to pay. You talk to people and you're like, when do you use this app versus that app? And most people say, like, I am not loyal to any app. Whoever sends me free delivery, then I go and order. So what are some of the logistics that change when you have a higher volume of delivery business? Does that change the way you manage your restaurant? All of our food preparation in terms of preparing our meals is done right in front of the customer. And so it's very obvious when a customer comes in and you have our chefs making meals for to-go orders, and then you have customers sitting there waiting, getting annoyed because they're not being serviced, and they can see that you're You're sitting there (laughs) filling up containers. I've been in one of those lines and have seen that happen, and it's pretty frustrating. Yep. And so for us, you know, we it makes us worry about what is that experience for the customer. So we try to make sure that customer that's come in, that they're being serviced and at the same time staying ahead of any orders that are coming in. But a lot of times it happens so quickly, you can't adjust in time. Mm. So in some of our restaurants, we've created what we call a secondary line where we're able to service all of our third-party and online orders from a different line than our front-of-house line. So you have like a second kitchen just for the delivery orders. That's right. Wow. A lot of people are moving to commissary for this reason. So what's that? It's a hub-and-spoke model. So if you think about having one central point where all the food is made and produced and then distributed out to the different restaurants. They're industrial kitchens. Interesting. It's not as expensive to have the real estate like a prime brick-and-mortar location. But for us, we think that there's a risk of food quality. We really pride ourselves on serving incredibly high-quality food, and we want everything prepped and served as quickly as possible, and inevitably with a commissary model, that that isn't possible. And so um, we, we go the hard route. <laughs> when you look into the future, do you think that more and more restaurants, I guess, like yours are 
you know, going to be moved to this model of having a you know sort of a central kind of warehouse. It's not even really a restaurant where people can go to, but it's servicing you know all of this demand for instant food delivery. Yes, I mean it's it's already happening. There's concepts here in Northern California who do zero cooking in the region and ship up all of their food from from where Los Angeles. What? Wait, wait, wait so wait, wait, wait. restaurants in Los Angeles that send food up to San Francisco? That's right. They truck it. It's all bagged. But I do believe that there is going to be a movement uh, back to real human interactions. Delivery is obviously a, a very important thing. I think there's a lot to do in terms of technology. But if you look back 50 years and you say, okay, well, how much have restaurants changed from 50 years ago? Honestly, they haven't changed that much. Why? Restaurants are essentially very expensive assets. You invest a lot of money in build-outs in creating restaurants. And so they're not something that you can rebuild overnight. And so they're not an app that you can reprogram and relaunch. Sure, we can talk about, like, how they're tech-forward and and more sophisticated. But they're, at the same point, like, people are coming in, you're interacting with somebody, you're ordering food that you want, you're getting that food, and you're eating it, and you're enjoying it. That's what the experience was 50 years ago, and that's what the experience is today. The art of dining out is a really enjoyable experience and important part of people's lives that will continue to endure. Leslie feels like an unusual restaurateur to me. I mean, how many folks who run restaurants today are not only adapting to the food delivery business so quickly, but getting ahead of the curve of all these other tech trends? Yeah, but I mean, she's part of that whole wave of venture-backed restaurants, right? I mm-hmm. mean, from Cava to Sweet Green to Blue Bottle Coffee, these are all like tech-enabled businesses that view technology as a way to differentiate and grow fast. And so, you know, for them, I think they look at food delivery apps and they're like, oh, well, that's going to give us scale faster. Mm -hmm. And then they can negotiate as they grow, right, better deals with those companies uh, and get around the 20 to 30 percent hit that they impose on your regular neighborhood restaurant. Those fees remind me of my time living in Sicily. There's this concept called the pizzo, not pizza, pizzo. Pizzo, okay. I've heard of that. Which is this basically a tax the Sicilian mafia charges to, quote, protect local businesses. They're all required to pay it. It's basically extortion. These delivery app fees kind of feel the same to me. Like restaurants today have no choice but to pay them. I don't know if none of them have a choice. I mean, I went and talked to my friend Nicole, uh, who has a restaurant uh, in my neighborhood called Stomping Ground, and Mm -hmm. it's sort of one of our favorites. And I I asked her sort of a similar set of questions we asked Leslie, like, what do you think of all these food delivery apps? And she was like, yeah, we used to use them, but for all the reasons that Leslie kind of went through, you know, it was bad for customers, bad for revenue, et cetera. She was like, screw this. And she just literally cut the cord. She she got rid of all of the all of the apps but she can do it because she is a very special restaurant. Uh, it's People don't just go for the food. I mean, the food's great, but it's really, it's like the vibe. You go there because you see friends, you know, you bring your kids there. So I think restaurants like that, they can say no, uh, but I just don't think, you know, that every restaurant is going to be able to just get off of the food apps. 
Well, I have to say, I hope these kinds of restaurant neighborhood restaurants can stay in business because, honestly, the alternate option is really not appealing to me. These commissary kitchens just do not sound that appetizing because right now I feel like we're in this whole movement of trying to know more about our food. Who's making it? Where does it come from? How is it made? And if it's made off in some remote location in an industrial kitchen— that's having the opposite effect. Yeah, but I mean, one of the hottest startups right now, I mean, to that to that end is cloud kitchens. Like they're buying up a ton of industrial real estate to build commercial kitchens just for delivery. No seating at all. And guess who's their biggest backer? Travis Kalanick of Uber. <laughs> of course. Well, based on his track record, it feels like this cloud kitchen thing could actually be pretty huge. And that's interesting because right now it feel it actually feels like there's a huge boom in the kind of traditional brick-and-mortar restaurant business, at least in my neighborhood. All the empty storefronts are being occupied by new restaurants. But if Travis's business really takes off and these cloud kitchens become real, I'm wondering if this, you know, boom in brick-and-mortar restaurants is actually going to last. I feel like the signals aren't that good. No, I really, I don't think they are. Uh, I mean, for the restaurant owners that are holding these leases, like those retail locations they have now, they're going to make it actually harder for them to compete with these new industrial kitchens. I'm guessing Amy Liu from the Brookings Institution will have something to say about that. You know, what's interesting is that I see some parallels between overall retail and restaurants. As all the big box retails and big brand names like Gap and JCPenney's and Sears and Sports Authority and Toys R Us, as those businesses shutter, they are mostly impacting smaller communities and suburban districts, jurisdictions that are highly dependent on strip development, malls, and even main streets for their revenue. And What's going to happen is as smaller cities and towns bear the brunt of all of these closures, they also don't stand to benefit from all the new tech innovations, whether it's in retail or food delivery. What I see as a result of this disruption is higher-end consumers benefiting for greater choices and lower-income households and lower-income communities losing out from those new investments. Mm. Um, Shopping malls and stores are going to be more of um, boutique, more artisanal, more of the experience like the Apple store. Mm -hmm. Or on the other extreme, for lower-income communities, they're going to see a lot of the proliferation of the dollar store. So what can cities do to, or people do to steer us away from this future where, you know, some people are really going to benefit from this and others aren't? Do you think there's anything policymakers can do? I think the one way to think about uh, more inclusive products uh, that meets the needs of all of a wider range of consumers is to reward a much more diverse set of entrepreneurs. And what I'm seeing cities begin to do is really think about um, – inclusive entrepreneurship, minority entrepreneurship accelerators, um, financing and venture capital that reaches women, working mothers, um, entrepreneurs of color, entrepreneurs from different countries, because they will come up with ideas and solutions that reflect their experience. 
and their community. And so if we broadened the entrepreneurs in our communities, I think we'll have different kinds of products. Many of our traditional economic development tools are aimed at attracting and retaining large companies. And what we need to do is take all those tools and focus on how do we instead steer our tax breaks and our programs to support local businesses, local entrepreneurs, particularly those that want to open up businesses in the neighborhoods in which they live. We've heard from a couple folks we've talked to that they're starting to see the development of these like industrial kitchens that don't have any sit-in customers that are, you know, instead of being in the neighborhood, now they're located out in the edge of the city and industrial areas, and they just exist purely for delivery purposes. Is that a possible future that you actually think could happen? Are we going to see some huge reshuffling of land use from, you know, downtown uh, restaurants out into the fringes of our cities? Are there just these industrial kitchens? there is that trend that's happening. And so how do we accommodate that? Do we need to put all these warehouse distribution centers at the fringes of a community, therefore creating sprawl? Food manufacturing is the perfect um, small batch production that can be thought of as an urban asset versus an ex-urban one. Instead of cities Um, rezoning away from industrial towards commercial and residential is we should save room for uh, industrial spaces, but reimagine them now. Think of craft beer or um, ice cream. These are all become very gourmet, very um, artisanal in a way, uh, customized to different tastes. And so therefore, we're not looking at large mass assembly lines uh, like yesterday, but um, more creative spaces now for uh, local entrepreneurs. That, and that makes a better neighbor, let's say, to other urban land uses in their downtowns or neighborhoods? It means that they don't need to take up a lot of space. Mm. And we're starting to see a lot more smaller manufacturing facilities in the urban core. It allows these small uh, manufacturers to access workers a lot easier, particularly um, workers who have just a two-year degree. Do you have any sense of what kind of jobs that, like these industrial food manufacturing jobs would be versus, um, you know, restaurant jobs as they exist today? Um, According to a report that we released recently, food establishment positions are one of three positions at the highest risk of automation. And so this is a real risk Mm. for entry-level workers who have relied on restaurant industry or fast food chain or grocery stores as the first job uh, in their career. And the last thing I would say about jobs is the drivers. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked a lot about um, just-in-time delivery, um, and that also raises question about job quality and job security. Food delivery takes a lot of delivery logistics. What do you think cities need to do to better manage that? You know, for many of us uh, in cities, we've been trying so hard to create options and travel options to reduce, whether it's bikes or transit by rail or bus, walkability, to reduce car trips. Now we've introduced a delivery service, and we have just probably tripled, quadrupled car trips in our cities. 
you know, with all the talk about climate change and uh, environmental sustainability, uh, there is a lot of questions about what's the energy use of the vehicles um, that we are using uh, for all these trips uh, while we're waiting for truly AV or electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a role for drones, and that is another level of logistics we have yet to figure out, and we must. What I'm hearing you say is we should lean into some of these new technologies that can help us, you know, deliver the complicated logistics of food delivery in a way that's better for our cities. What I'm not hearing you say is we should change our behavior and our expectations. I mean, my impulse is I feel guilty when I'm ordering (laughs) on one of these apps because I recognize how much work goes behind delivering me this food. Do you think we should change our behaviors at all? Who knows? You know, obviously, as consumers, we need to think about the choices we make. But I also think the innovators have to really push the envelope here. Um, There's such a rapid pace of product innovation today. And we just want to get the product out there and we want to scale it, scale it, scale it. And we're not pausing to ask follow-on questions about who is this product for? Um, Are we making this product for a wider group of consumers, particularly since our cities are increasingly represented by different immigrant groups and racial groups and incomes. Um, Second is, what are the environmental implications of the product that we're creating? And are we making sure we're creating solutions that are both inclusive and sustainable? Mm -hmm. And I think if we were offering those kind of products out there, consumers will take advantage. Stay right here for more from me and Jim. We'll be back right after the break. I mean, it sounds to me like some of the impacts of food delivery, they might be the same as the kind of impacts from other retail delivery, right? Like loss in sales tax, more congestion from all those delivery vehicles everywhere. And then, you know, I think maybe some of the restaurants will survive, but probably only like the artisanal type or experiential type restaurants. Amy mentioned, uh, what, beer and uh, ice cream, which <laughs> lit me up because those were like the two special words in my uh, <laughs> household. Uh, but, you know, I think what really surprised me, what she said, uh, I didn't really resonate, but I think I need to think about it, which is that those food logistics buildings, like the industrial kitchens, almost like the cloud kitchen concept, She thought they might actually be good for neighborhoods. Yeah, I have to say I never imagined food manufacturing being a better neighbor than other kinds of manufacturing. But I I get her point. I think it's really interesting. I mean, I still think I would prefer for that place on my corner to be a food business that I can actually go into. Yeah, me too. And I think the walkable neighborhoods in, you know, downtowns of a lot of big cities, particularly ones that are more affluent, I think they're largely going to be okay. But there's really going to be a stark difference, you know, if you are in a, let's say, lower income neighborhood or places that aren't as walkable, Mm -hmm. like, you know, places where restaurants are on strip malls and things like that. I think you might see some very profound, you know, changes. Mm -hmm. And it's the same story as, you know, everywhere else. People talk about the gig economy creating a new servant class and a consumer class, It also feels like this reshuffling of commercial real estate 
it's going to exacerbate those same inequalities in brick and mortar across neighborhoods, too. And I've also been thinking about how these inequalities play out in the world of food entrepreneurship, right? Because we know that running a restaurant is really hard, Mm -hmm. but it's also one of the more accessible kinds of small businesses to start. So I'm wondering if, you know, with all this venture funding flowing in, the need to maybe invest in industrial kitchens, these big fees that the apps are charging, is that going to erect more barriers so it makes it a lot more difficult for immigrants and first-time business owners to start restaurants? Is it going to still be this great economic opportunity for those kind of folks? So let's get into my favorite topic. What can cities do to ensure that we all experience more of the benefits of delivery and less of the drawbacks? I'm looking forward to this. What do you think we should do, Molly? What if we change the zoning to actually incentivize what Amy suggested, that these industrial kitchens can actually fit in our neighborhoods, which means that they'd be closer to where their workers live and would keep these storefronts more occupied. Or Mm -hmm. what if uh, cities could provide more support to the diverse local entrepreneurs who might be more likely to cater to you know, a diverse array of customers and a diverse array of neighborhoods Mm -hmm. across the city. Yeah, I think there's also a lot to figure out on the, you know, infrastructure side. Mm -hmm. Because even if the delivery robots or drones take over, I mean, how are they actually going to navigate our streets? There are going to be so many vehicles everywhere. We're going to have to institute some sort of tax, a congestion tax, whatever. Mm -hmm. And cities are going to have to find a way to use whatever authority they have to to get these companies to share the data on where these trips are so they can better manage the traffic flows. You know, listing off all of these regulatory tools that cities might use for the food delivery apps makes me think that the food delivery startups might want to try and get ahead of some of this and be the quote-unquote good guys to avoid the barrage of new regulations. They could promote some of these small local restaurants in their app. Mm, totally. The yeah. same way like Whole Foods does, where it has a, you know, section in the front. It's like, you know, local food businesses. And I still think we need to ask the question though, like, who's gonna pay for all of this delivery over time? Because the business models as they're currently set up, uh, you know, they're being totally subsidized by the by the venture capitalists. Mm-hmm. I mean, Leslie told us the restaurants can't really afford it, at least not the right, the small guys. And I doubt that we as consumers are going to be willing to pay a lot more than we're paying right now. Yeah. And the delivery jobs, they're not sustainable at such low wages. So it makes the business vulnerable to, you know, I don't know, backlash that might lead to unionization, changes in other labor laws, taxes, as you were proposing, etc. Yeah. And I think that's why, like, the venture-backed businesses are just biding their time until they can replace all those delivery workers with drones or robots. And that's going to totally disrupt a lot of people's lives, which brings me back to this delivery addiction. Hmm. When I see everything that goes into bringing me a bowl of pho at my house, it's 
insane. There's the gig worker who's being paid below minimum wage to bring it. There's, you know, the restaurant that is cooking the soup instead of paying attention to the customers that are there in their restaurant. There's a delivery vehicle clogging the street. There's all the packaging that I'm just going to throw in the dump. And I just wonder if all of this infrastructure and human labor that is required to just bring me one bowl of pho because I'm lazy on my couch is worth it. You know, it's looking like it probably isn't. But you know what? I can see why it's so tempting. All I could think about right now is is that pho. Like, <laughs> and I'm guessing your joint doesn't deliver all the way to Alexandria? <laughs> no, it definitely doesn't. But you know what? Next time you're in town, I'll take you there. And we can even grab a table just like in the olden days. Join us back here again next week when we'll explore how tech is helping city leaders stay on top of what their residents actually think and how they also communicate quickly in emergencies. We'll ping you from Feedback City on the next episode of Technopolis. Until then, I'm Jim Capsis. And I'm Molly Turner. Nicole Fladow is the City Lab editor and our five-star rating. Virginia Laura is our associate producer, and Lizzie Jacobs is our executive producer. Josh Rogazin is our engineer, and our music's by co-pilot. In addition to the always insightful City Lab staff, there are several people we want to thank this week. Matt Jorgensen, Allison Shashuk, Larissa Ortiz, Jamie Scott, Chad Emerson, Amanda Elliott, Emmeline Rood, Nicole Jones, Rob Krupika, and Bill Blackburn. For more on Delivery Cities and other topics relevant to our urban lives, head to citylab.com. And don't miss out on a single episode. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. And tell a friend.